we're going to finish Colossians in the next couple of weeks, uh, first week in March, and then we'll do Philemon. That'll complete the prison epistles that we started last fall, going through Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, those four books, uh, the prison epistles that Paul writes from prison uh, as he, in his first imprisonment from Rome, is writing uh, to the Christians and to the churches. Uh, so those four books preserved in a canon of Scripture. And then we're going to, uh, at that point, uh, get close to, to Easter. Matter of fact, I think that'll take us up to uh, Palm Sunday. And I'll do a special Palm Sunday message on the tw- uh, 20th of uh, March. And then we'll have Holy Week and we'll have special services as we always do. Wednesday, Good Friday service, uh, Resurrection Sunday. And then after uh, Resurrection Sunday, we're going to embark on a study in Luke's gospel. So um, I looked at the last time I taught Luke. It was back in 1998. 18 years ago, yeah. So I thought, well, we better go through Luke again. It's been a while. I was looking at some of my old notes, and they are awful. So I got to redo all of that. And <laughs> it, it, you know, it was a long time ago. It was one of the first books that I taught uh, here. So looking forward to it. Lots of great Bible studies that uh, we have on Sunday mornings, and any book of the Bible is wonderful. But tonight we do want to study Psalms, and we'll be in Psalm 108. As Lord, we just come and we desire to once again be edified, be encouraged, and Lord, be comforted by your word. And these Psalms penned uh, millenniums ago, that Lord, they're for us today. And Lord, I pray that we would just benefit and profit from them and allow them to touch our hearts here tonight. So we give attention to your word at this moment. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Psalm 108, uh, as we get into Psalm 108, this psalm may sound familiar to you. And if it does, it's because verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 108 is a a repeat of Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11, word for word. And then verses 6 through 13 is going to be a repeat of Psalm 60, verses 5 through 12. So uh, here David, he takes those two psalms, portions of them, to make this new psalm as we read uh, a song, a psalm of David in Psalm 108, verse 1. O God, my heart is steadfast, and I will sing and give praise even with my glory. Awake, lute and harp, and I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. In verse 5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth. And so again, this is a repeat of Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11, as David's heart was steadfast towards the Lord, just as we were told to do, and it was Paul's uh, instructions and commandment given to the church at Colossae. You might recall in chapter 1, verse 23 of Colossae, say that he says you be steadfast and steadfast as we're exhorted through the scriptures to be steadfast in the Lord it means to plant your feet where you're at 
and to stay there. And I think it's very important for us to know how it is that we're steadfast, how we can plant our feet in the word of God, in the things of God, and not be moved because there's a lot of things out there. There's a lot of voices out there. Uh, there's a lot of temptation out there that will cause us to be moved away from the Lord. So we want to be steadfast in the Lord. And David talks about being steadfast here. And one of the ways that we can be steadfast is he says, I will sing and give praise even with my glory is one, a person who worships. And I think that it's important for us to understand that worship is very much an important part of our Christian lives. And I think we all agree with that. But sometimes we kind of forget what worship really is. It's it's an attitude of the heart. It's it's something that we can do daily. It's not just when we gather here on Wednesday nights or uh, on Sunday mornings. It's wonderful to be able to have that time of worship, corporate worship together. I just love it how we come in and, and worship is taking place and, and, and it's such a marvelous thing for us to, to have here uh, in our services and be a part of our service and drawing us close to the Lord and really preparing our hearts to hear from the Lord. But worship is something that we can do every day. Worship is, is just giving praise in our hearts to the Lord. And I hope that we are ones that we desire to be uh, more like David here. I, I read these Psalms. The Psalms also, you know, really emphasize worship, doesn't it? And praise to God and drawing near to the Lord. And worship is one way to do that. And worship is a way for us to be steadfast. And so it's through just every day as we awake. And, and I love what David writes here. I want to be more like this as we read uh, here in verse 2. Awake the loop and har- uh, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I want to be more like that. David says, I will awaken the dawn, not that the dawn will awaken me. And you see, oftentimes in my day, it's, it's the dawn that awakens me. It's like David when he says, I will awaken the dawn as I give praise to the Lord. He's, he's saying, I can't wait for the day to start so I can praise him. And we can give praise to him as we start our day, as you have your devotions. I know as we see the beautiful sunrises, we can give praise to him or the beautiful sunsets. We can give praise to him as we gather our family around, as, as we just spend time with him and think of him. Just that attitude of heart, which is so important, it will help us to be steadfast. So we can be steadfast in that. And also, as Colossians tells us, Paul says, be steadfast as we we are grounded in the Word of God, chapter 2. Uh, it isn't a philosophy. It isn't legalism. It isn't, uh, you know, mysticism. But it is in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we're steadfast as we're growing in the Word of God and as we're planted in the promises of God. That's another way we can be steadfast. And then thirdly, as we're serving the Lord. Because Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at the end of that long chapter in verse 15, 58, he says, be steadfast and movable, always, you know, doing the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain. So those are ways that we can be steadfast. And here, David, he says that I will sing and give praise. I will be steadfast in my heart. And and as we do worship him, and then as we see also in verse five, to exalt the Lord, um, as we're exalting him, we will be steadfast in the Lord. And in verses six through 13, we 
read that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine and Ephraim also is a helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my wash pot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Over Philistia I will triumph. And who will bring me into the strong city? And who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. So again, we see that this is a repeat of of what we read in Psalm chapter 60. And David praises God for uh, delivering him. And as you read Psalm 60, you see that that was the heart of that psalm um, as he takes a portion of it and makes it here in Psalm 108 uh, attached to also what he writes in Psalm 57. But we read that here, as David is emphasizing, the delivery of David um, that comes from the Lord, he is our help. Uh, David writes, man can't help us. And, and I want us to understand that there is help that comes from brothers and sisters in the Lord as we serve each other. There is safety in the multitude of counsel as we get that godly counsel. We can help one another, but ultimately our help comes from the Lord. And he's the one that is delivering us from uh, the the things of the world. He's delivered us from sin and death, and we can praise him for that. And so the theme here in verses 10 through 13, what David is saying is God is able. He's the one that gives us victory. He's the one that we turn to. And he works on our behalf, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. And so now we move into Psalm 109, another psalm of David. Uh, This is the last of the imprecatory psalms, as David is speaking about those who have come against him. And scholars differ um, on uh, when David wrote this psalm. Some believe that he perhaps wrote it before he became king. Now, in a precatory psalm is where David, because his enemies are coming against him and, and treating him unfairly, and, and he's facing all this injustice and, and, and harshness by his enemies trying to destroy him, trying to destroy his reputation. David, in the honesty of his heart, he prays, you know, uh, praises God, but he also, in the honesty of his heart, he is uh, praying for God to deal with them, for for God to, you know, uh, judgment to come upon them. That's what it means in a precatory psalm. So as we go through this and as we read it, David perhaps they think that he wrote this before he was king when of course we know that David was anointed king by Samuel there in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that David didn't ascend to the throne. Uh, He would uh, go and he would uh, kill Goliath the giant from Gath uh, in the next chapter and then David became Saul's armor bearer. David was one that ministered to Saul in the palace and played music to him and also was one that would deliver 
deliver the armies of Israel from the Philistines as the people would sing songs that Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And, and when Saul heard that, he became very jealous of David. He, he became angry at David. He wanted him dead. And you know that it was Saul that pursued David through the wilderness for a time of about 12 years through uh, that time where David was at the height of his life. Um, and David didn't come to the throne until he was about 30 years old, as the scripture tells us. He would reign for 40 years till he was 70. And that's when David would go home uh, to be with the Lord. But we know that David, uh, he would go through those very difficult years of Saul pursuing him. So as we read this, as David is praying for judgment to come down upon those who come against him, it could be speaking of Saul, or others say that perhaps it is in Second Samuel, that event that we have talked about in some of the Psalms that David pens, when Absalom, his son, rebelled against him, uh, tried to take the throne from him, the, the hearts of the men of Israel turned against David, they turned towards Absalom, and it was Absalom, David's son, who came into Jerusalem, taking the throne, and, and also with David's trusted advisor, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel uh, was one that was very close to David. He writes about Ahithophel in Psalm 55, you might remember, that David says, oh, if it was my enemy, I could, I could bear it, but it's my companion, my equal. The one that we took sweet counsel together. He's talking about Ahithophel and how Ahithophel had turned against him. And, and we talked about the reasons for that because even though Ahithophel and David were close uh, during the times of the early years of David's reign, and David loved to hear Ahithophel, his, his um, words were like the oracles of God, as Second Samuel tells us. And David would just listen to Ahithophel and talk about the things of the Lord. Ahithophel turned against David because he was bitter and he was angry because because Ahithophel had a granddaughter named Bathsheba. And it's interesting to do that study and make those links together. And so I want to give you some background because it's very important for us to understand what anger and wrath and bitterness does uh, if we hold that in our hearts and we continue in it. But David here, uh, to the chief musician, a psalm of David in Psalm 109, Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened uh, against me, and they have spoken against me with a lying tongue. And they have also surrounded me with the words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers. But I give myself to prayer, verse 4, and thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. So as David is, is recounting either that time where Saul is coming against him, and remember Saul had 3,000 men at one time that were also with Saul pursuing him. Saul lied about David. Saul treated David very unfairly coming against him. We know that it tells us in 1 Samuel that David's actions towards Saul was blameless. Matter of fact, David said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. David had opportunity twice to do Saul in, to lop his head off. But David wouldn't do that. So it could be speaking of Saul or Absalom and Ahithophel that gathered a whole nation 
there in, in 2 Samuel 15 and 16, as you go through those chapters, and David had to flee out into the wilderness, that they would speak against him, a lying tongue. Uh, they would uh, return my love, uh, my accusers, and reward me evil for good, and hatred for my love is what he writes. So David is really hurting here. His heart is very wounded, as he's going to write in this psalm. But David does something very important that we need to understand and that we can glean from. Here in verse 4, he says that, but I give myself to prayer. Because perhaps someone here tonight, or several of you, they view experience by the hands of a good friend or by family or whatever, that you feel like that you've been treated unfairly, that you've been treated very badly. You tried to love them. You tried to minister to them. You, you were close to them at one time. Just as David was close to Saul, he married Saul's daughter, his first wife. He, Saul was a part of the family. And David was faithful, or it could have been that it was, you know, his own son. And David, he was hurting when his son turned against him and wanted to kill him in Ahithophel. But perhaps you've been through where you've been cut very deeply, and you've been hurt very deeply by people. And in David here, in verses 6 through 20, he's going to express, Lord, bring this judgment on them. There may be another application or implication as well as we go through it that we'll get to in just a minute. But David, he's very hurt by this. And they're lying about me, and they're coming against me. And perhaps you've been in a situation like that. Maybe it's not just a friend or family, but maybe in a work situation, Situation or something like that. And it's very important when we've been hurt deeply and treated unfairly that we go to the Lord in prayer. Because what can happen is, is anger and bitterness and wrath and, and jealousies and all of that begin to come into our hearts and, and it begins to grow and consume us. And it's very ugly. And that's why it's important that as this Sunday, as we're going to talk about that Paul, he has already said as we've gone into chapter 3, that you're to mortify these things, put it to death, make a decisive action to, to put away the, the lust and the, the fornication and the evil desires and passions and, and the lying. Just mortify, just put it away is what you're to do. And we discuss that in details. And that can be a big problem amongst Christians. Matter of fact, somebody was asking me, really, as you talked about on Sunday, is uh, you know, fornication, which is any form of, of sexual immorality. And, and it's the, the Greek word pornea, where we get our English word pornography. Is it really a problem uh, amongst Christians and stuff? Here's a study that was done by Barna Group, and, and they did the study with Proven Men's Ministry that deals with guys that really struggle in those areas of fornication, pornography, and all of that. And this study was done just a little over a year ago. And the study concluded those who identify themselves as born-again Christians and the struggles that they have with pornography and affairs, 95% surveyed of born-again Christians said that they have viewed pornography. 54% look at pornography at least once a month. It's over half. 44 view pornography at work in the last 90 days. This is what astounded me. 
31% have had a sexual affair while married. 25% erased, that is, internet browsing history to conceal pornography use. And then over 25% admit that they are addicted to pornography. It is a huge problem. So we're told to, to mortify it, put it to death, make a decisive action decision to not even look at it, mess around with it. But then Paul goes on, and we're going to see on Sunday, that he's going to say, put off these things, anger and wrath and malice and, and, and all of this evil speaking and, and again lying to one another. He says, don't do it. He says, put it off. He says, you're a Christian now. Don't be angry. And sometimes we get angry, don't we? Sometimes we see what happens around the world. Sometimes we see what happens to others and we get angry. But we can get angry and hurt when something happens to us. And again, treated unfairly and justly, whatever the case may be. And I don't want to minimize the hurt. But when we are anger, angry and, and malice, malice means you just sit there and you stew about it. When you become full of wrath, when you're like ready to blow your top, bitterness begins to grip our hearts. And Hebrews warns us against bitterness. Don't let that root of bitterness just grip your heart because it will grow. That anger, wrath, malice, bitterness, it will grow. And it will grow like cancer and consume you. And it will put you in bondage. And it will torment you. So what do we do when we're experiencing those things, when we're angry? We need to pray and go to the Lord. And then Paul says, listen, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. And the thing I have said before is I think one of the hardest things that God has called us to do when we've been hurt very, very deeply is to forgive. But the Lord desires for us to forgive because if we don't, then those things of anger and malice and wrath and unforgiveness begins to grow in our hearts and consume us and begins to, to overtake our lives. And it's not a good thing. I don't want to go through life being angry and bitter and full of wrath in my heart. And maybe somebody's you're here tonight and you're saying, well, I have every reason to be angry. I understand that. But what we are to do is pray to the Lord as David does here and trust in him that he's going to take care of things and take care of you to bring that comfort and healing that you need. Because if you continue in that anger, it will grow. And I've talked with people who have been angry for years and how it has really affected them emotionally and spiritually and even to the point of physically. They're so angry. They're so bitter. They've been so hurt. And again, I don't want to minimize that hurt. I understand that you can be hurt very deeply by a person or a situation. But forgiveness is something that we have to give to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to forgive. It's something that we have to do over and over and over, bit by bit by bit, moment by moment by moment. Lord, help me to forgive. And do that work in my heart. And that's something that we learn from David. As I look at all these psalms that David, he was, man, he went through a lot of stuff. And a lot of people, David was interesting. Either the people loved David or they really hated him. 
And when they hated him, like the whole nation turned against him. Just as in the instance of Absalom rebelling and taking the throne from his, his father David. He doesn't know what's going to happen. They, they're lying about me. They want to do me in. So David now in verse 6 through verse 20, he, he begins to pray this imprecatory prayer. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty. And let his prayers become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his offerings. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him. And let there be, uh, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off. And in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Verse 14. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Because he did not remember to show mercy but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart as he loved cursing, so let him come, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, so let it enter his body like water and let oil into his bones. And let it be to him like the garment which covers him and for a belt with which he girds himself continually. And then in verse 20, let this be to the Lord's reward, to my accusers, and to those who speak evil uh, against my person. Now a couple of things here. As David wants judgment on them because they didn't, um, you know, because of the uh, injustice they did. And it's pretty harsh here, isn't it, as we read this. It's very, very harsh. As David is, I think, expressing the honesty of his heart. One thing about David in these Psalms is he's very honest. And he writes about, this is what I'm feeling. Now, he didn't do these things. But this is the way that he's feeling. And when we get very angry, we can feel things like this. And there is David that says, let the Lord's reward to my accusers and those who speak evil against my person. Let this be done to them who are coming against them is what David writes. So I think that David is just writing what he is expressing or feeling in his heart uh, as Lord, you deal with them. You bring this judgment on them. Now, there are some commentators and scholars that have suggested something kind of interesting in verses 6 through 19 that they suggest that this is what the accusers were thinking about David. This is what they were saying. This is what they were saying about David, that he be fatherless, that, you know, he be a vagabond, everything be taken from him. This is what they were thinking, and perhaps that's true. But I think that verse 20 tells us that David says, let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers. And to those who speak evil against my person. And we think this is pretty harsh. But David again is just expressing these things. And verse 21 is a key. But you, O God, the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake. Interesting, isn't it? This is how I'm feeling, Lord. I got this, this anger. And I got this, this you know, uh, just these feelings that are not good. So, Lord, you deal with me. 
And it's very important for us to go to the Lord and say, Lord, deal with me. <clears throat> I can't, you know, deal with them right now, but you can. So, Lord, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to pray, and, Lord, you deal with me with my heart because I don't want to be full of anger. I don't want to be full of malice. I don't want to be full of wrath. I don't want to be full of bitterness and have it grow in my life. But, Lord, help me to forgive. And, listen, forgiving doesn't mean that, you know, it's like, well, no big deal. Or what they did wasn't a big deal. It means that, Lord, I need to let go of this and to forgive because you've forgiven me of so much. And I am told and commanded to forgive, but, Lord, you have to help me to do that. And that way that you'll be free from all the anger and bitterness. But again, it's day by day, bit by bit. So David says, you deal with me for your namesake because your mercy is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy and my heart is wounded within me. He's expressing, my heart is wounded, but I am poor and needy. Now, it wasn't that David was poor. He was a very wealthy man. But he's talking spiritually. I'm poor emotionally. That I'm poor and needy. I need you to work in my life. I need you to, to work in my heart that has been wounded. And I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them when they look at me, when they shake their heads. They just shake their heads, a reproach to them. It means they just continue in treating him unfairly, unjustly, very badly. Uh, and it's so bad, David's feeling this, that he's saying here that I can't even eat. I'm so weak. I can't even barely stand up. Uh, and uh, this is bothering me so much. This is affecting me so much. In verse 26, help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. Let, when they arise, let them be ashamed. Uh, but let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgraces with the mantle. Uh, I like what David writes in verse 28. But let your servant rejoice. It's hard to rejoice when we're going through those times, isn't it? One of the things that my prayer is, is Lord, please, I don't want to lose that joy. The joy of the Lord. And I don't want anybody to take that joy away from me. When people have treated me rotten, when people have uh, said things to me unfairly and, and um, out of bitterness or whatever, when I'm treated that way, I don't want my joy to be robbed because of that situation. But Lord, help me to rejoice in those times to trust in you and turn to you. And let my accusers, as he said in verse 29, be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. And I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him for those who condemn him. Again, praising the Lord is going to help you to be steadfast in the Lord. And David was one that he, when he went through these difficult times and situations, he continued to praise the Lord. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? I'll speak for myself, all right? It's a very difficult thing to do because I don't feel like praising the Lord in those times. I murmur to the Lord, but I don't feel like praising the Lord. And David, he really shows us through these psalms that in those times... 
of difficulties and trials and hurt to continue to rejoice and to praise him. And David found strength and comfort in that, and so will you and I. Well, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a very familiar psalm. It's a messianic psalm. It is alluded to more in the New Testament than any other psalm. Matter of fact, I believe that it is um, quoted ten times in the book of Hebrews alone. So we know that this psalm, as is told to us, a psalm of David, and he wrote this psalm, speaking about Jesus as we go through this short seven verses. But also Jesus would affirm that in Matthew chapter 22. And then Peter also in Acts chapter 2, as he quotes from Psalm 110, speaking about Jesus, and he says that David wrote this psalm as well. So we read in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. So right away, as, as David is writing, he says, The Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized, the name of God, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Talking about this psalm here, when the Lord comes back and he rules and reigns. And he's going to rule and reign, and he's going to have complete preeminence over all the nations, and, and rule with a rod of iron, as Psalm chapter 2 tells us. And he will establish his kingdom. So here the psalm starts out that, but it's interesting that this This is quoted, as I mentioned to you, in Matthew's gospel in chapter 22. And in chapter 22 of Matthew, that you know that it's the last week of Jesus and the religious leaders are coming along and trying to, to trap you know, Jesus and ask him questions and trying to back him into a corner, having uh, some reason perhaps to accuse him of something so that he can be arrested, but uh, to no prevail. And in Matthew chapter 22, while the Pharisees were gathered together, I'm going to read it to you, but you can jot it down in your notes and, and look at it uh, later. But in verse 41 of Matthew 22, the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Now, you know that in the Gospels that they would refer, call out to Jesus, some people, son of David. That was a messianic term. That was a term meaning that we know that the Messiah is going to come from the line of David, a descendant of David. So that's what the Old Testament declares, or what the prophecies declared. So here Jesus, he says, I'm going to ask you guys a question. You've been asking me questions all day. Who do you, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said, well, the son of David. He's going to be a descendant of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word uh, and didn't ask him any more questions for the rest of the day. So he asked them this question. They couldn't answer it. And in that, as he says, that, you know, David called him the, uh, you know, the son of David, but why does he call him Lord? And you see, in that day, uh, you would never call uh, a son Lord. You know, why does he call him Lord then? And the answer is the incarnation. That here I am. That I am Lord is what Jesus was saying. He was claiming his deity at that time. 
So as David here is writing, speaking about the Messiah, and, and this is quoted all throughout the New Testament, and, and we see that uh, David would continue in verse 2, that your Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 2 here again, talking about the absolute rule of Jesus when he comes back. And again, just kind of an interesting side note that, till I make your enemies your footstool, verse 1, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, that many um, interpreters and commentators and scholars and, and, and all of that, they believe that the, a name of Jesus here is rod of your strength, that rod should be capitalized, just a little side note. That he's referred to the rod of your strength. That's another name of Jesus. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. Verse 3. Verse 3 speaking of serving him. Your people shall be volunteers. Now again speaking of when Jesus comes back. Just as we read and, and Paul would mention in Colossians that we're going to come back with him in that day. And great glory, Jesus, in the second coming as he comes back, Revelation chapter 19 tells us that we're going to come back with him. Jude says that, behold, he comes with ten thousands of his saints. So we get to come back with Jesus because I believe what the scripture teaches, that there's going to be the rapture of the church that will take place seven years before the tribulation period, uh, before God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world, that we're going to be raptured. There's going to be a generation of Christians that are going to be caught up, as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us. It's the Latin word rapturus, where we get our English word rapturus rapture and we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air we're going to have dinner with the Lord for seven years in the marriage feast of the lamb and then we're going to come back with him in the second coming of Jesus Christ that takes place at the end of Daniel's 70th week or the seven year tribulation period and we're going to rule and reign with him and here's the thing we're his volunteers as it says we're his servants and Jesus right before he went to the cross gave a couple real important parables concerning that when the master returns as he gives that parable the talents speaking of when Jesus comes back and what he had entrusted to his servants the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25 that is spoken again right after the Olivet Discourse and Jesus tells of that parable of the master that gave a servant five talents and and won two talents according to their ability and as they invested uh, those talents it's a weight is what a talent is it's not talking about I have you know these talents sometimes I've heard Christians kind of say yeah talents God's given you talents it's it's a weight of measure but it's speaking about what God has entrusted to us and gifted to us, the giftings and opportunities to serve him, are we really investing in the kingdom? Are we being good stewards of that? And then the master comes back and finds the one who had five talents, that there was a return on that. And making account of that is what the master says that, that the servant was to do, and he did. And as there's a return on that investment that the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Same with the one with the two talents. Very similar to the parable of the minus. 
That's in Luke's gospel. That's a different parable. There's some similarities, but there's some differences. There, there's ten servants giving the same amount, but there was an account given to them, and the master, as there was an investment on the return, what the master had entrusted to them, that when he comes back, that they gave an account, and then he would say to them, as they would say, here's the, you know, the, the investment. Here's what I did with what was given to me. And, and the master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. I'm going to have you rule over ten cities and over five cities, you over here. And so it's telling us that when we come back to rule and reign with Jesus Christ, he's going to have things for us to do. And a lot what we do here now, listen, in this life is going to be tied into what we're going to do when we rule and reign with him. In other words, This is boot camp, folks. And what has been entrusted to us? He gave some five. He gave some two. He gave one one according to their abilities. The, The gifts, the callings, the opportunities that we have in life. Are we being good stewards of what God has blessed us with and the opportunities that he's given to us? He said that if you can't manage your earthly manna, how are you going to manage heavenly manna? And so all these things that the scripture talks about, that one of the last words that is spoken of Jesus, that when he returns in Revelation 22, that he says, I will come and I'll come with rewards to give to my servants. He's got things for us to do. Don't buy into the Hollywood picture of us up on a cloud playing a harp, you know, and bored in heaven. We're going to rule and reign with him. When he establishes his kingdom here on this earth, the ten cities, the five cities, what exactly that means, I don't know. But as many of you know, I've put in my bid for Yellowstone, all right, National Park. That's what I want to administrate and rule over and help with. But seriously, there's going to be things for us to do, and we're all going to stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ, and we're going to be rewarded for what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. You might be thinking, well, Pastor Jeff, I didn't think we were going to be judged. You're not going to be judged for your sins. That's already been taken care of. Jesus took the judgment for you and for me on Calvary's cross. We're not being judged for our sins, but with that said, the Bible has a whole lot to say about standing all of us at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ. The Olympics are this summer, right? Down in Brazil. And, and this summer, I love watching the Olympics and, and, and when somebody from our nation wins and they you know, have the medal and they raise the flag. And it's just a very special time, isn't it? You see, Paul's using that same phraseology in the ancient Olympic Games that the athletes would stand at the Bema reward seat and receive rewards. And that's what Paul's saying, listen, eternally, spiritually, when it concerns the kingdom of God, all of you are going to stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ, and you're going to be rewarded what you've done in the body, whether good or bad. Again, not talking about salvation, But we're talking about rewards given to us for what we have done in this life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it tells us that it's going to be all of our works tried by fire. And it's going to be lacking to wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious metals. And the wood, hay, and stubble is going to instantly burn up. And as I just kind of put it all together, I picture when we go home to be with the Lord, that we're going to see him immediately. To be absent from the body, Paul writes... 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is to be present with the Lord, immediately with the Lord. And we all stand, verse 10, at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ. And I just picture that when we go home to be with the Lord, he's going to look at us with those, those eyes of love, those eyes of flames described in Revelation chapter 1 and all the things that are unlike him and not, you know, with the best motive and, and all those things that weren't pleasing to the Lord. It's just going to be wood, hay, and stubble and it's going to burn up. And all the things that please the Lord and all the things that we did that he desires to reward us with is like gold, silver, and precious metal. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And then as Jude says that he's going to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. And he's going to usher you into the throne room of God and he's going to present you to the Father, introduce you to the Father, if you would. The Father knows you. And the Father and the Son are going to rejoice over you. And we're going to be given rewards and duties. What exactly does that mean? We'll find out. But it's for all eternity. And that's why Jesus would say, store up your treasures in heaven, not here on earth. And the rewards that we get, it's going to be more glorious than any Olympic Games or anything, Super Bowl, Lombardi Trophy, any of that stuff, because all that's going to go away. So live for Christ. And love Christ. And Paul in that chapter, he says, this is what we do. We, we, we live for Christ because we're going to stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ. People say to me, oh, that's kind of selfish, wanting rewards, and not according to the New Testament. It talks a whole lot about it, that we should desire that. Second of all, it's the love of Christ that constrains me, motivates us. And then we have been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now we have the ministry of reconciliation. Three motivations there in chapter 5, why we should live for Christ. And very important motivations. So, here, verse 3 is talking about his volunteers. We're going to come back with him. We're going to rule and reign with him. The Lord has sworn, and you will not relent. You are priests forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's getting late. I had about a 15-minute teaching on just Melchizedek. So I'm going to give you an assignment. Who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek first shows up in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, right? Remember that, that, that there were five kings down in the, the Jordan Valley by the Dead Sea, the king of Sodom, the, the king of Gomorrah, and three other kings. They were being held captive and under bondage of four other kings that came from the north for about 12 years. And those five kings came together. They tried to rebel, and, and they failed. So the four kings took them off captive up north, clear to Dan, clear up towards Damascus. And one of those captives was Lot, Abraham's nephew. So Abraham, he gathers 318 of trained servants who were warriors, soldiers, and goes up and frees them. And he comes back, and all of a sudden, there's this individual that comes to, Dave, uh, to Abraham. Then Melchizedek, at the end of chapter 14, after that battle, 
Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed them and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he gave him a tithe of all. That is, Abraham would give a tithe to Melchizedek. So here is this individual that comes out, Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem, which is a name for Jerusalem. It means peace, and he's the king of righteousness. We know that he blesses Abram. Abraham gives to him, and he's a priest and a king. Now, here's the thing. When you go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, the author of Hebrews, again, you can write that down, chapter 5, that the author of Hebrews making the case that Jesus is our great high priest. Actually, he says he's our compassionate high priest in chapter 4. Then you move into chapter 5. You see the Hebrew reader would be thinking, wait a minute here. You can't be a priest and a king. In the Levitical priesthood, all the priests came from the tribe of Levi, right? And direct descendants of Aaron. Every priest was a Levi, not every Levi was a priest. You had to be a direct descendant of Aaron. So you're calling Jesus, who you're saying is superior than any religious leader, any angel, uh, that he ministers in, in a superior priesthood, in a superior sanctuary. He, his sacrifice is superior. That's the whole argument in building up of the author of Hebrews, that he brings a new covenant he can't be priest. He can't be king. You, you can't do that. Only the direct descendants of Aaron. He's from the tribe of Judah. So they would say, wait a minute here. How can you call him a great high priest? You see, Uzziah in the Old Testament, he was a good king. But what happened? Uzziah was a king. He went into the holy place. He's burning incense. They, the priest came in and said, Uzziah, you can't do that. You're a king. And Uzziah said, bug off. I'll do what I want. And God struck him with leprosy. So the writer of Hebrews, here's the homework for you to do when you go home or this weekend, that he begins to make the case that, that Jesus, our great high priest, comes from a superior priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And in chapter 5, he, he starts that, and then he pauses the author of Hebrews. Hebrews is a very technical book. You got to think, put your thinking caps on when you go through Hebrews and know the Old Testament and, and lots of quotes from the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. But I'm going to shorten it up here real quick. He pauses. He talks about how you guys need to take in the meat and grow in maturity and uh, the um, you know, infallibility of the Word of God. And then chapter 7, he goes back into getting, okay, uh, Jesus' priesthood is superior and he, you know, takes them back to Genesis 14. But to say that Jesus comes after another priesthood, after order Melchizedek. Who was Melchizedek, by the way? Some suggest that it was a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. The reasons is because Jesus, he is our peace, right? And he is our righteousness, and he brought bread and wine, which speaks of what? Communion. And he blesses Abraham. And Abraham gave to him a tithe. So some say it's obviously it was Jesus. Others say, no, it wasn't. It was a type of Jesus. 
But you see, because Abraham gave to him, he's recognizing that Melchizedek is greater. And in the loins of Abraham was Isaac, and and then his descendants was Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, They were the patriarchs of, and one of those was Levi. So Melchizedek is superior, a priesthood that lasts forever. A little reading assignment for you. For you who like to dig into these things and like to look at these things more closely. And then as we finish, the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute, uh, execute kings in a day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. And so, Father, we thank you for tonight. We went over a lot, but Lord, I pray that as we've gone over these psalms, how amazing they are. Speaking of Jesus, speaking of him coming back, the hope, the blessed hope that we have, the return of the Lord. And Father, also that as we as your servants, that we can go to you and cry out to you anytime that we belong to you and we can trust our lives, whatever is going on, that you see us and hear us. And Lord, that you will just bring comfort to a wounded heart or a difficult situation, you'll guide us. Or Lord, you'll help us wherever we find ourselves because we belong to you. Father, I do want to pray tonight If there is anyone listening to this message that has not surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, has not come to salvation, that we want to give you the gospel. We want to tell you the good news, and that is Jesus came, the great high priest, the one who is Lord of all. He came to die for you because we've all sinned and sin separates us from God so as we come and believe in him and call upon his name recognizing that we need to be forgiven that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and made atonement and he was put into a grave and he rose again he's alive as you come in faith salvation is promised to you forgiveness and a new beginning in life and if you've never done that it's not about religion it's about relationship with him he loves you he's calling out to you right now if there's anyone here that you want to give your life to Jesus today is the day of salvation tonight is right now and right where you're sitting you pray Jesus I come to you I confess that I am a sinner I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. And you rose again and you're alive. Speaking to my heart through your word. Speaking to my heart. To surrender to you and I do so right now. I give you my life. I believe in you. Be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. And if you prayed that prayer sincerely in your heart tonight,
come up and tell me when the service ends. I want to pray with you and encourage you. But for all of us, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, I pray as we go home, just a heart that worships and that is joyous, even in the midst of hardship, looking to you for everything. Bless everyone here now. Lord, bless our day tomorrow and this weekend. We look forward to when we gather once again on Sunday morning. We thank you that we've had this privilege to be here and hear your word and to, to fellowship with one another, to worship you. So as we go our way, may your joy rule in our hearts. 